From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we talk to Ken Gullion and Carrie Hurt from Round Peak Vineyards in Mount Airy, North Carolina. Ken and Carrie fell in love with vineyards in some of California's most well-known wine regions. They moved to North Carolina in 2008 and bought Round Peak Vineyards. They've turned it into a place that's known for being relaxing, casual, and fun. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back again. This time they tell us about wine additions or things that are added to the wine to help improve the quality. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. All right, so welcome to Cork Talk for Carrie Hurt and Ken Gullion of Round Peak Vineyards. Thanks for taking some time to talk with us today. Glad to be here. So, um... We'll have you both introduce yourselves and I guess start with Carrie and talk, tell us who you are. Sure. Um, so Carrie Hurt and um, I'm married to Ken Goulian. So I'm one of the, the owners of, of Round Peak Vineyards. And um, usually my role with Round Peak is helping out on the side. So I am still in my full-time role, um, doing my corporate job type of thing. And um, so I'm usually there on weekends, usually helping out with tastings or um, special events, things like that. Um, actually, on Sunday, I did a tasting at Total Wine. Um, and so I jump in here and there, but um, mostly seen enjoying wine um, on our back patio, as Ken would say. <laughs> Absolutely nothing wrong with that. And Ken? Uh, this is Ken Goulian. I'm obviously married to Carrie. And... Um... We both made the plunge into the, the winery business in 2008, um, at which time I had left the corporate world. So I became full-time manager of the winery. Right now, you know, we're hoping that Carrie does get back and join us full-time in the business soon. Um, but I run all the day-to-day activities and, and try to keep things moving along and not buck it up too much. <laughs> So, so does she give you a hard time for, does she come in and, and tell you what you've done wrong then, Ken? Never. She <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't listen to me anyway. <laughs> so Round Peak was already an established vineyard, correct, in 2008. So tell us about your opportunity to, to purchase the, the vineyard and why you chose to do that. So Carrie and I had recently moved back from California in 2008 and had spent a lot of time at wineries and just hitting various places and and meeting interesting people who had left their corporate jobs and started the wineries that they were at. And when we moved back, it was really for Carrie to take a role in another business. And I had just left um, from my, my company and was looking for something to do. We didn't actually know there were any wineries in North Carolina at the time, but as I started searching for a company, a small company to buy, um, because basically I wanted to be my own boss, uh, I was online and found a winery for sale, and it happened to be Round Peak Vineyards. So Carrie and I just basically went out and, and started hitting some wineries and, and educating ourselves about the wine business. And we're really, you know, it, it was incredible how many wineries there already were at that time. And, and the wines were pretty good. But what really sold us on it when we went to Round Peak, which we did anonymously, was we did our tastings and the wines were good. Uh, we walked around the back to the crush pad and we saw the fantastic views. And that is kind of sold us on that lifestyle component of owning a winery. So even though we'd met a lot of people who had done this in California, it kind of piqued our interest. We had no idea that we would be doing it, you know. A year later. So what was that planted in the vineyard at that point in 2008? The original owners really focused on French and Italian grapes. So there were 10 total, Chardonnay, Viognier, um, on the white side, 
on the red side, it was Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, um, on for French, and then on the Italian side, Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, and I think that's it. I think I hit them all. What changes have you made since to the vineyard itself? Well, as Kerry, you can pop in any time. I'm kind of answering these these obviously, yeah. but as we got into it, you know, we began to learn a lot about what grapes grew well in North Carolina and didn't, what sold well and didn't. And so over the last 12 years, we've made a significant number of changes, although our acreage is about the same. The Viognier is now gone, um, makes a great wine in North Carolina, but the yields aren't great. And we decided we had to do something different with that. Sangiovese also made a nice wine on really nice dry seasons, but it's very temperamental in the vineyard. And we kept having to make rosé out of it. So while you'll find good Sangioveses at other vineyards and, and elsewhere, we finally decided it was not something we wanted to continue to plant. On uh, the brighter side, we love Petit Verdot, and we planted that a few years ago. Uh, fantastic wines and does great in the vineyard. Tanat, which is a French grape, but primarily grown in Uruguay, I think is going to become very popular in North Carolina because, again, it's great in the vineyard, produces really nice wines, has good color. Um, so we're very much sold on that. And then we actually have Norton, which is... Some people say hybrid, some say native um, to Virginia, but a, a grape that I think has a lot of potential. And we're just starting to have our first harvest of significant quantity on that one. And Ken, don't forget the Montepulciano. Oh, I'm sorry. There you go. Uh, and yeah, about 10 years ago, we actually planted Montepulciano. We were the second in North Carolina to do it after Raffaldini planted it, had a great success in the vineyard and made some fantastic wine. So we followed in their footsteps. And I think now across North Carolina, you're seeing a lot of Monte Pulciano um, because, again, it does great in the vineyard and makes really nice wine. Yeah, it's definitely um, one of those varieties that you see more often now than you did probably five or six years ago. Sure. So let's take a, a quick step back, if you don't mind. So coming from California, I'm assuming that when you were out there, you had quite a, you know, a bit of California wine. So what kind of inspired you when you came out to the East Coast to say, I want a winery? When we were out in California, I would say no less than once a month, we would go out to wine country and go wine tasting. And um, we particularly loved the Dry Creek Valley, but we, we went all over Sonoma, Napa, you know, we, we made our way around to a lot of wine country. And actually, in the course of things, we, um, we noticed how different each of the wineries were. You know, some were big estates, corporate owned. Others were small family vineyards. And actually, we met a, a couple that had retired from, um, from their corporate life and had bought just, I, I think, no more than eight acres um, and were making wine. And we loved their wine and we loved their story. Um, and so one of the things we appreciated out in California was the difference. You know, you could, you could go to a winery that was small, little one room or, or maybe even not even have a tasting room. And, and taste some phenomenal wines. And then you could go to these bigger, more um, showy corporate places and, and where their wines were in distribution and, and sold naturally, nationally. So when we came to um, North Carolina, um, what I particularly loved about North Carolina was number one, that it was, we were, we were getting in at the, um, the early stages of the wine business. You know, I, I don't think it really started ramping up until the late 1990s. And so when we bought the, the winery in 2008, you know, there, there still were just, you know, I think about 80 um, wineries in, in the state. And it's grown significantly since then. Um, but I think one of the things that's really nice about North Carolina is that each winery has its own style, its own personality. Um, it, we are experimenting with different grapes. I think everybody's working really hard to produce some nice quality wines. Um, but it, it's kind of fun to be in at the ground floor of something that's really uh, taken off and is booming. And yet, like California, each one of the wineries or vineyards is different. It's not like you can go to one North Carolina winery and say, oh, there's North Carolina wine. That's, that's how it is. Each of us are different and unique. We have our 
um, specialties, our advantages. And um, I think it just sort of makes a great destination for people who are in the state to go out and visit. Much like in California, people go wine tasting all the time. And of course, now, um, you know, people travel from around the world to go to Napa and Sonoma and other parts of California to go wine tasting. So hopefully that answered your question. <laughs> I definitely think it did. And I, and I completely agree with you. I think it's it's very exciting to kind of be in on the ground floor when you are being part of something that's kind of just taking off. And you also hit it right on too with every winery, every vineyard in North Carolina is different. There is something that's always going to set them apart from your neighbor or from other people in the state. And that's just one of the great things about the industry here in North Carolina. So Carrie, you talked about style and personality. How would you describe the style and personality at Round Peak? So I would probably describe it as relaxing, casual, and fun. You you both have been to our vineyard, and I think one of the great pieces of our, you know, coming to visit Round Peak is the view. And we have a huge back deck with lots of tables that are available. It's very low key. You can come do a tasting, grab a bottle, go out on the back deck, bring a picnic, or use one of our grills, hang out, spend the day. Um, we've got a big open lawn. Um, we've got a a disc golf course. And so it's very casual, laid back, and fun. You know, it is a place you can really bring your family or go with friends and um, sit and enjoy yourself and, and just spend some time admiring not just the vineyard, which is beautiful in itself, but also the backdrop of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And so the view is great. We always have a nice breeze coming across our vineyard. And so I always just think of it as just relaxing and casual and fun. I think that's a great way to describe it. So we've talked about the view a couple times. So maybe describe what folks do see out, out on the back deck there. Yeah. So right front and center, um, or actually right off the deck, you'll have a nice green area. We've got a fire pit, um, big area for, you know, games or cornhole, that type of thing. But then um, pretty close following that is our, our grapevines. And so you can pretty much see the entire vineyard from the, the back deck. Um, and so we've got about 13 acres planted, but we've got about 30 acres total property. And so you get this nice big open view of the vineyards. And then just beyond that um, are, are the mountains. And the nearest mountain is Skullcamp Mountain, which is the name we used for our second brand of wine, our, our sweeter our lens um, that we put in cans um, so that's the, where that name came from so you see Skull Camp Mountain and then just beyond Skull Camp Mountain you see the Blue Ridge and the Blue Ridge Parkway is just about 10 miles away from our, our vineyard so you know they're pretty up and close um, and the elevation changes dramatically um, between us and, and the Blue Ridge. So the Blue Ridge Parkway runs along there. And so you've got a beautiful view of the Blue Ridge. Um, we get a gorgeous sunset every day. And it doesn't matter if it's a cloudy day, if it's a rainy day, or it's a sunny day. Um, our sunsets are beautiful because each of those conditions create a really spectacular sunset. So a lot of people come to... Um, Make sure they stay through the sunset and see it um, happen in the evening, which makes it just beautiful. Yeah, it certainly is a, a, a fantastic view. And, and the Blue Ridge is anywhere is beautiful, but you definitely have a good uh, picture frame of it outside there. So you mentioned Skull Camp, and this is probably a good time to kind of go into it. So let's talk about the second label that you have. So what were some of the things that went into saying, hey, we want to kind of peel off part of this and how did you decide to go about that so yeah one of the things we learned very early on uh, once we were you know we owned round peak and we were in the tasting room talking to customers is many of our customers that came in wanted sweet wines and at the time we bought the winery round peak really focused on dry french and italian style wines and and we still do that today but what we realized is we weren't serving a lot of the people that were coming into the winery. So because we already had an established brand and we didn't want to alter the perception of that brand, we decided we wanted sweet wines, but we didn't want to use Round Peak. As Carrie mentioned, Skull Camp is the dominating mountain right behind our winery. 
so it just made sense. It's a fun name, and it, it, we wanted to have fun wines that were easy to drink. So, so hence Skull Camp Wines was born, and it started out as really semi-dry to sweeter wine, but it's actually evolved over time to be a full range of wines. We have dry, we have you know off dry, and we have sweet. But um, in 2017, we actually decided to start canning all our wines. So we were the first in North Carolina. But the reason for that is they are drink now, take them to places that you can't necessarily take bottles and just enjoy, you know, good wines. Yeah, absolutely. A, a while back, we had talked about alternative packaging and Skull Camp definitely came up in our conversation. It really is kind of an, a very cool innovation in the industry to have and be able to offer canned wine product because it's something you don't always see it is becoming more popular but especially here in the state you know like you mentioned you're the first there's still not too many people doing it but it is great to offer especially if you're going to be hiking or boating or anything else like that where you really don't want to lug around a 750 of wine exactly so you mentioned um it's kind of a little bit more of the the fun side so what are some of the the offerings that you have on the skull camp side so they almost are all blunt so um, we, we use, on the white side, um, Chardonnay. Um, we've used Vignet occasionally in the past, Traminet, um, Lascott. Um, trying to think if there's any others. A little bit of Petite Mensing. So not exclusively from our vineyard. Um, but we tend to do blends. And as Ken said, we, we do pure dry blends or, as well as semi-dry and sweet. So in general, we try to have that full range from dry to sweet um, in the white. And then um, one of our, probably our most popular um, Skull Camp wines is our Skull Camp Confusion. Confusion being a rosé. It doesn't know if it's a red or a white. And again, we we use different grapes um, to make that rosé. It tends to be um, off dry or semi sweet, depending on how you want to describe it, right around 2% residual sugar. And then we also have some reds that range from, um, from dry to sweet. Our sweetest wine is something we call Sweet Thing Pink. And that is, um, it's a pink wine and it's sweet. I always say truth in advertising. The name <laughs> says it all. Um, and that is one of our most popular um, Gold Camp wines. We also put um, our sangria into cans under the Skull Camp label, and we use natural fruit juices to um, to add with our, our usually a red wine, um, and we've done it both sparkling and still. So um, that is also incredibly popular, and it's just a, a great, I'll, I'll call it boat or or sitting next to the pool wine. I don't mind canned wine one bit at all. And I think a sangria in a can, whether it's sparkling or, or still, would be pretty good, especially on like a nice hot day. Absolutely. Also, the names, um, they're very um, whimsical. So uh, anticipation is our dry white. Um, as I mentioned, sweet thing pink. We've got confusion on the rosé. Um, we've got obsession, infatuation. They're all states of mind. And um, so they have fun names to go with the fun wine. That's pretty cool. I'd, I guess I never really caught on to that. Sometimes it takes me a little while to catch on to these trends until you really say it out for me. So that's really cool. I will be looking for the states of mind next time when, I, yeah. when I'm looking that at it. That or we don't mark it well. One of the two. <laughs> <laughs> I think Joe picked up on it. He's kind of giving me a, a look like, what are you talking about, Matt? But yeah. <laughs> he needs some rosé. <laughs> Confusion rosé, in case folks didn't get that. Um, so we've talked about Skull Camp wines. Maybe let's we let's back up and run through kind of the the offerings on the Round Peak side of the house. Yeah. So, so Round Peak really has stayed true to what it was when in 2008 when when Gary and I became involved. It's really focused on French and Italian dry wines, and and to the extent we can, we try to make them in traditional styles. Um, we are 100% estate, um, specifically for Round Peak. And for the last two years, we, we've been 100% estate for Skull Camp as well. So we grow and use only our own grapes. And we'll continue to do that going forward. Um, even in a year like this, where we had you know, a lot of frost damage, we're going to have not a lot of wine coming for 2020. 
may pose a challenge, but we've committed to being 100% a state. And that, I think, is, is really important because we do want to use and express, you know, the area that we grow our grapes in, the terroir. It's just, I think it's a unique area, the Yakin Valley, and, and we make some fantastic wines, not just us, but across the region. We want our wines to represent here. We're not trying to make a California wine or a French, you know, Bordeaux area wine. We're trying to make really good North Carolina wine. So we use the grapes we get and we grow the best grapes we can. And that's reflected in the wines we make. So what kind of, what's, what's the oak treatment do you typically do for, uh, particularly, I guess, the reds? And do you do any of that for any of the whites? So we do not oak any white wines. Um, we, we have done a oak Chardonnay in the past, but it's a style that neither Carrie or I are, are very fond of. So we really focus on stainless steel uh, for all of our white wines. On the red side, we have used barrels from the U.S. We've used French. We've used Hungarian. We've used other Eastern European. We've settled now on um, French barrels. You know, after enough trials with the same wine in different barrels, we've come to the conclusion that that's what we want to do. Uh, and we do barrel age all our wines. We don't chip or, or use staves or anything like that. We're very traditional in that regard. All of our wines on the red side We'll go into barrel between 14 and 16 months. And the amount of oak that we extract obviously depends on the style of wine we want to make. But we manage that through how long we will leave and what percent we'll leave in new barrels versus neutral barrels. So they'll all be in 14 to 16 months, but the time they spend in which barrels will vary depending on the, the wine style we're trying and obviously the grapes that, that we're making the wine out of. So I know you had mentioned, you know, your grape varietals and all that. Uh, one of the wines that you offer is fairly unique in the state. There's there's maybe one or two others that are producing a single varietal of it. But talk a little bit about the Nebbiolo. So, so we have a love-hate relationship with our Nebbiolo. <laughs> um, it, it is a unique grape. We're one of two in North Carolina. And I'll give a shout out to Grove Winery over in the Haw River because they are the other one. And the two of us have stuck with the Nebbiolo through you know various challenges in the vineyard the big challenge is yield we'll get a half a ton a ton a ton and a half maybe two tons in an acre whereas most of our other reds will be between three and three and a half tons Mm. so the yields are very low the other challenge in the vineyard is we have to cane prune every vine and there's two types of pruning that most people do spur pruning and cane pruning i would say cane pruning takes three to four times longer to do and it has to be done on every vine every year or the grapes don't yield so those two things make it a challenge in the vineyard once it's in the winery um, it's an interesting wine it's very acidic it has some of the lowest phs of any grapes at harvest time and it has probably the most tannins of just about any grape in north carolina and certainly it's one of the top four or five in the world So you add all those together and you have a very difficult grape in the vineyard and you have a wine that once you make it, you have to age for a reasonably extended period of time before it really becomes, you know, ready to consume. Um, That's the love and the hate part of it. But the great thing is it makes a fantastic wine. You know, it's known worldwide for uh, being in Barbarescos and uh, Barolos from Italy. Um, And I think our wines do represent very similar um, both aroma and palate characteristics that you get out of the ones coming from Italy. Yeah, the Nebbiolo is is definitely uh, one of our favorites from Round Peak. Um, it's fantastic, and it's nice to get something that you can't, can only find basically at Grove, and Grove does a great job with it as well. We were talking with Max some months ago, and um, he was he's that's his favorite wine. Uh, that he makes as well because he just loves Barolo and so he had to grow Nebbiolo because of that so yeah Uh, Carrie and I recently did a tasting with um, five of our vintages of Nebbiolo mixed in with four um, from Italy two Barolos and two Nebbiolos and we did them blind in in sets of three with ours mixed in we gave everybody descriptions our descriptions and then whatever came with the bottles from Italy and asked everybody to identify which were which. And, and 
in no case did anybody figure out which were round peak and which were Italian. They they are very similar tasting. And when we looked at which the favorites were, ours came up a number of times as the favorite. So uh, I, I think we do make a, a Nebbiolo representative of, of those coming over from Italy. Having said that, I would absolutely say our climate is completely different than what they have over there. I think that's a really fun thing to do, Ken. Uh, and, and unless you're really like a major Italian wine aficionado, you may not have tasted a Barolo and have been able to say, this is what it tastes like. So that's that's really cool to offer. So we're actually at a, a really good spot to take a quick little break for our education segment. But when we come back, let's talk about uh, events that you uh, hold, both at Round Peak and Skull Camp, and then we'll kind of see where the conversation takes us from there. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thank you for having us. So what are we talking about today? Today we were going to talk about additions to wine. So all the things that could end up in your glass that's not grape juice. <laughs> okay. okay. Wow. Yeah. So to kind of start off and first the bubble, <laughs> most wine has other things in it to help um curate the taste to what the winemaker wants so some of them you need some of them may just be to help boost it along and generally if you're drinking a you know maybe under ten dollar bottle of wine from the grocery store it's probably very added and something that was made in the lab right there's been a lot of things to help coax it to where it is in your glass Interesting. So why do we add things to wine or in the in the winemaking industry? Why do they do that? So I guess first, one of the big reasons to add things would be kind of to correct the grapes that come in. So a couple of things you can add. Um, you can add sugar, mm-hmm. which is actually called chapelization. So if you say your grapes come in and they don't have enough natural sugar, because you can test that, you can do a conversion and figure out exactly how much percentage alcohol it would turn into. If that's not high enough for you, you can actually just add sugar to the grapes so that there's more for the yeast to eat and convert to alcohol so you'd have a higher alcohol percentage. That sounds helpful. Yeah, and one thing to note about that, it is illegal in California and some other countries, So, but it is beneficial in areas where the temperature may not get hot enough to get the sugars you need in the grapes themselves. So. Mm-hmm. One, two, you can add sugar at different part points during the winemaking process, right? So can you add back add? Yeah. To sweeten, if you're looking for a sweet. Yeah. Okay. So, but I think that we're talking more about the kickstart. Well, it's good to know um, that you could use it in both areas. So if you need a little extra boost or some sweetness to the wine, that makes sense. Exactly. And kind of on the flip note of that, you can add acid. So you know, maybe your grapes come in and they've got a lot of sugar and they've lost some of the acid along the way, you can straight add some citric or tartaric acid to the grapes so that your wine ends up more acidic. That's important. It's good to have a nice balance of acid within the wine. Yeah. And they also make um, tannin, that's a powder, and it's actually tannin. I mean, it's like crushed up grape skin so it's not anything weird but you can add that to if you're scared your grapes may not have enough tannin you can go ahead and add more tannin Hmm. adding grapes to grapes interesting (laughs) what a concept (laughs) so those are kind of the big ones i think to kind of you know pre-fermentation at the beginning to help your grapes along and then another category a lot of times there are additions once you have your wine to help make it better as far as if there's flaw or if you need to clarify it any or make it more shelf ready. Like if you want to get rid of proteins or anything weird in the wine. Some of the things that the average consumer just doesn't think about that there are probably proteins from the yeast and from everything else happening in there. It can bind and make them drop out. Exactly. Um, you know, one of the old school ways to do that was egg whites. To just put an egg white into your barrel of red wine and it will it will bind and there actually is there's still a lot of more natural i guess derivatives that are added so shellfish and some fish things yeah <laughs> the fun one is isinglass and isinglass is the dried 
slim bladder of a sea sturgeon. What exactly would you use that for? <laughs> so that can help clarify a wine. It's okay. usually used for wine. Um, kind of can get rid of some, some funks and, and taints and just cleans up the wine. It always makes me wonder, like, who was the first person who discovered this? Because yeah. <laughs> with all traditions, like, in theory, everything that you need to make wine is on the grape itself. Right. The sugar, the yeast, the acid are all there. So who was the first person that was like, I'm going to put some egg right in here and do it. <laughs> oh, no. Probably a chemist, I'm hoping. <laughs> but it's not fine. Everything's great. What a happy accident. I'd, I'd be wondering about how that fish bladder got in the big vat of wine. <laughs> <laughs> Carrying a big rickety bladder of the, the winery and somebody slipped and fell. Oh, no. Yeah, I think there's some funky stuff people used to use. I mean, I've even heard, and I have to look this up for sure, but I've even heard of, like, there's a wine it's called Bull's Blood or something, and it's because they used to actually use blood to help bind, and it would fall out of solution. You weren't drinking it, but it would bind and pull out some proteins yeah. and junk along the way. So with the additions of all these additives, does that impart any flavors or does that do anything, you know, that you wouldn't want it to do to the wine? So more often than not, it actually pulls out more than you may want. So it's that delicate balance of, you know, if you're adding something to clarify and pull out some negative qualities, you're probably also pulling out some good things along the way. So, um, you know, it's that decision of, is it better to have a super clean, shelf-ready, perfect wine that's going to sit on a shelf and be good in a year when somebody buys it? Or do we want to make sure we retain 100% of what the grape gave us and maybe have a few proteins or something in there that could boil? You know, it kind of depends on how you want your wine or who your wine is for. You know, are you selling it out of your winery and it's a local product and people know that? Or is it, you know... Four ninety nine at the grocery market store. <laughs> yeah, that definitely can make sense. Who it's going to be sold to would probably put in, uh, you know, a good deal of decision making on how much you actually do to it. Yeah, I mean, and they can even like manufacture color too. So, you know, your red wine could potentially have like actual color added. It's also from grapes, so right. it's, it's not anything weird or like bad. But, five, right, <laughs> but pump in extra color from grapes to make it you know a deeper red or purple if you want again the things you really wouldn't think about if you're not familiar with the winemaking process right and it's not like it's on the label right steps along the way additions necessary and do you want it on the label Mm. i don't put it in all that i'm good good. (laughs) don't want to see how the sausage is made right Interesting. So do you have a favorite edition or one of your most off-the-wall editions that you uh, have researched? We've already used that with our <laughs> But I think, you know, working in wineries, a lot of this was eye-opening to me when I first encountered it. Like, especially just the sugar and acid edition. You know, I mean, some of the stuff that clean up salt and understand, but I know I was first very shocked that you can just, like, completely change the chemistry of your grapes themselves to get a different wine out at the end, like by alcohol level or acidity level. Um, so, you know, they say that the wine is made in the vineyard and the grapes are what's important, which is so true for most wines. But you also can change the chemistry right. of what comes in if you have to. Well, I think that like trying to fathom the quantities, like when you're making wine at a commercial level, there's yeah. literally like pallets of sugar. Yeah. <laughs> Like, you know, I think there was a forklift involved. Yes. You know, so it's just like, what? Kind of crazy to conceptualize. Yeah, it helps to put it all into scale when you think about it like that. Yeah. But it shows why you need educated winemakers and the vineyard and the winery, winemaker managers need to work so closely together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One big happy family. Yeah, wine helps. <laughs> so anything else we want to add? <laughs> that was like a mat pun there. Uh. <laughs> I think we've kind of hit on some of the major ones. 
Well, Jesse and Jessica, we definitely appreciate you giving us a little bit of an education on the things that they add to wine to enhance it and make it more wine-like. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram, at winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. All right, so we are back here with Ken and Carrie of Round Peak Vineyard. So, Carrie, why don't you tell us a little bit about the events that you offer at both of your locations, Skull Camp and for Round Peak? Certainly. Um, so, actually, at, at Skull Camp, we just had an event this past weekend. We had an um, Oktoberfest um, because we, we also grew beer down in our Elk and Skull, Skull Camp location. So, we, that was uh, an event this last weekend. But at the at the vineyard and the winery, um, we host a series of events that um, what, that we do every year. And I'm going to start with my absolute favorite, um, which is our Skull Camp Out. That's actually coming up in just a few weeks. Um, it's on October 17th, and it's we invite people to come and spend the day and night with us in the vineyard. Um, so people bring their camp, uh, their tents, or their campers. Um, set up camp in the vineyards, and then we have um, dinner, a bonfire, music, um, and people spend the night um, doing a big camp out together. And it usually ends up with a a group of diehards around the the campfire late into the evening um, singing camp songs. So um, that is probably my absolute favorite event. Um, And we're very lucky because um, because it is an outside event, we are able to, this year with COVID, um, hold that event. Many of our events this year, unfortunately, got canceled due to COVID, but we, we have a series of events that we typically do. One is we do our spring fling, which tip, typically um, is in April, and um, it's an opportunity for us to introduce um, our new wine releases um, that are coming out of the most recent bottling of um, usually it's the whites and rosés from the that year's um, harvest, as well as any from prior years that have been bottled um, the reds. And then um, during the summer we have what we call grill fest, and um, we held multiple of those throughout the the summer, where um, we're open until in until and through sunset. People come and bring um, picnics and food to throw on the grills that we have available. And we have music and um, usually put the cornhole out and people play games and listen to music and just grill up their dinner and enjoy the sunset um, because it is so beautiful. And then uh, another event that we do, um, we have our Carolina Sky Music Festival throughout the years. We've come to know many of the musicians in the Mount Airy and Elkin area, and um, several of them have kind of come together to help us organize um, Carolina Sky. And it's an opportunity for the local musicians to play a lot of their own original music um, in a music festival um, format. So what we do is we use our back deck as a stage, and we have people bring um camp chairs and blankets and sit on the lawn and um, enjoy some original North Carolina music. Um, some of it is, you know, country, you know, the, the typical North Carolina music. Other is just original music by some fabulous musicians. And we usually have between six and eight um, musical groups play throughout the, the day and into the evening. Um, so Carolina Sky is a lot of fun. And then um, another event that we have done over and over, um, and it unfortunately has been um, canceled due to COVID, and, and many races have been, um, is our Vineyard Stomp. And that is a 5K race that we run through our vineyard. And, um, and it, of course, has awards and, and so forth. But we've done that multiple times, and um, it's just a ton of fun. So that's a that's a little sampling. Um, Ken, did I forget anything? I, I think that's all our major events. We we do typical wine club events and you know barrel tastings, things like that. But the ones Carrie mentioned really are 
our larger events. And as you probably noticed, they all revolve around relaxing at the vineyard and hanging out. So it fits with our theme. Oh, I thought of one more that I have to mention because um, Matt and Joe, you both participated yes. in it, which is our signature series. Um, and that is a winter event um, by uh, by registration only. In other words, you you have to register in advance. Um, it's a it's a limited. But what we do is before we um, start bottling our reds for the year, um, we invite our customers to come and taste all the the reds straight from barrel. Um, get a sense of the ingredients that could go into a blend, and then um, blend their own wine. They leave with a case of wine um, of their own making, as well as the, the group will vote on the one that they like the best. And then we will um, produce and sell in our, our tasting room um, the winner of the event. And that is an awfully fun, fun event. We have a great time with that. And it's a, it's a great opportunity for us to um, get feedback on our wines. You know, what, are, what do people think of them and um, give impressions? As well as, you know, all of us are, have an internal winemaker, and it's, it's fun to see what people come up with. You know, speaking from personal experience, it, it's a very, very fun event. And I think we actually still have one bottle left from our blend that we did. It was several oh, wow. years ago. So, yeah, I think, I think we're going to have to open that up soon just to see how we it's We laid a couple down just to see how they would go, and we'll, we'll pull one out. Yeah. Here, out of so. sight, out of mind. So. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully it's getting better as it ages. Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, it, we ours, from what I remember, was mostly Sangio-based. So I think the acidity there really helped add to some of the longevity. Um, and, and I think the last time we had it, it was still good, but you could tell it was a maturing wine. So I think we'll have, we'll have to break out about our, our last bottle finally. But it was a yep. super cool event, just being able to taste and to play, basically. Um, and then to, to go through the experience of bottling and, and corking and that sort and of thing. And the labeling and putting the caps on. That was all a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah. So that was a, a really cool experience. And I don't know that anyone else is doing something quite like that. There are some blending events that happen, but not, not too many, I guess, where you get to take your, your own bottling with you and then maybe get a chance to actually have your, your uh, creation sold at the winery. So that's pretty cool. That's definitely yeah. something we would look forward to doing again. Um, but I guess we'll, you know, this coming year, you'll have to see with COVID whether that's, a, since it's an indoor event, yeah. whether that's possible or not. So one thing I wanted to bring up that kind of came up in conversation, and Ken, when we were doing our, you know, pre-chat for this, you mentioned that you're actually at the brewery. And why don't you talk a little bit about Skull Camp, the brewery itself? So, so I mentioned earlier when we, we discussed the origins of Skull Camp that, we were in the tasting room and we noticed a lot of people were coming in and, and wanting sweet wines and, and we didn't have it. So we, we started Skull Camp Wines. Well, of course, once we did that and people are coming in, the next thing that became obvious is a lot of people don't drink wine at all. And so we actually started carrying bottled beer at our winery very shortly after we took over just to have something for, for the people who didn't want wine to drink while their spouse or whoever was during their wine tastings. As it happened, there were four of us who were actually brewers on our staff at the time, myself, our winemaker, our vineyard manager, and then actually another a friend of ours who had gotten married at the winery. So it was a pretty quick decision to decide just to make our own beer. And we started that in 2012 on a very small system on the back patio of our winery. About two years later, we made the decision to expand and we realized we couldn't do it at the winery. We just did not have the room. So we started searching for an urban location to put our wine uh, brewery that was still close enough to the winery that we could manage both. And Elkin became the obvious choice for that location. So in 2014, we opened a larger brewery here at the old Basin Creek restaurant um, on the north side of Elkin. And we now brew all of our beers here but we still carry them at the winery. And we actually are still a brewery at the winery. We just haven't brewed there um, for a, some time now. But it really came down, it really came from just seeing another customer need that we weren't serving at the winery. So what types of beers uh, are typically found? I know you have some, some I think some usual beers uh, on the regular rotation and then some seasonals as well. Correct. So we're, we're a fairly traditional brewery when it comes to styles of beer that we brew. 
Uh, our most popular beer is our IPAs. That has absolutely been the trend for quite some time now in the beer industry. And, and while it evolved, it really hasn't receded. Knuckle Dragger, which is our double IPA, is by far our, our best seller, partially because of the name and partially because I think it's just a really nice beer. Um, we brew a, a red ale called Trail Bread, where we donate the proceeds to the Elkin Valley Trail Association to help build the trails here around Elkin. Those, those two are probably our most popular beers. And then we have a blonde, we have an amber, we have a porter and a stout. Um, and then seasonally, we just released our Hefeweizen and our Oktoberfest here this past weekend at our Oktoberfest event. We always do a Christmas beer. It varies in style. And we'll always have a spring release beer as well. But all told, I think we've done about 100 different beers and probably have 25 that are in the rotation every year. Yeah, it's it's amazing the diversity in beer. You just tweak a recipe a little bit and you've got a new beer. So. Yeah. I, I guess I, I you could do that with wine too. Up, so let me, let me bring up one more thing at the brewery because it's one of the very interesting things we do. We actually bring grapes from, we press our grapes and bring juice, the must down to our brewery and then we'll ferment it with one of our beers so we call it a co-fermentation where we use the actual juice the day after we harvest from the vineyard and ferment it with a beer so right now our our current one is a belgian blonde ale with chardonnay grapes in it actually sangiovese grapes we've done chardonnay in the past as well we've done cabernet sauvignon with a porter we've done merlot with our uh, Monte Pulciano. We've done a lot of interesting combinations. That's something that we almost always will have one on tap and is very unique, I, I think, in the brewery world or the winery world. I guess that's one of the advantages of owning both a winery and a brewery. So, <laughs> Absolutely. That's really cool. Well, and, and just from a taste perspective, I mean, because you do not find this very often, that, that sort of co-fermentation. Um, one of the things is that, like, especially with the, a blonde, you, with a with Chardonnay or even with Sangiovese, it gives a, um, it, it gives the, when you drink it, you say, is this a beer or is this wine? There's something unique about it that, um, that I think appeals to a wine drinker who maybe drinks beer occasionally um, because there's this hint of fruitiness that comes through. It's a good crossover product. You're really, absolutely. And, and let's talk a little bit about the food at Skull Camp. So uh, what would folks expect to see when they come in? Well, we're a smokehouse, so um, so we feature primarily smoked meats, and um, and you could expect a lot of that. So we sell a ton of wings. I think they're the best wings I've ever had. In fact, I've become a wing snob, where I pretty much <laughs> only want to eat our own. They, we've got a really yummy dry rub, and then um, we put the, the wings in the, in the smoker, and then they can be ordered with various sauces um, based on taste preference. Uh, we actually smoke our hamburgers. We also um, do a lot of chicken and pork and brisket. Um, we also have uh, specials that we do different times a year, like a smoked turkey around Thanksgiving season. We'll we'll do a um, a smoked corned beef um, for you know St. Patrick's Day things like that. Um, and then you know we've got a lot of of sides. So um, Ken is a big fan of mac and cheese, and so we've got several varieties of mac and cheese, what we call grown-up mac and cheese, where you can take some of the smoked meats um, and add them to the mac and cheese, which is really delicious. And then all the usual sides that you might find in in a pub-type environment, you know, fries and onion rings and, and things like that. I do have to say the mac and cheese is, is, is very tasty, and when you add some of that smoked meat to it, it's, it does take it up to another level. I was eating some right before our call. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So switching gears a little bit. Um, so it is 2020. So we have to talk about COVID. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how COVID has impacted your business um, and what you're seeing, you know, how have, folk, how have your customers responded as well? Well, first and foremost, obviously in March, we were all shut down. Um, as wineries and breweries, we couldn't do business other than take out at the restaurant and, you know, look, luckily take out of bottles. But so for the, for the two months before we entered phase two, it, it was very difficult for us, for our employees, 
Um, you know, we weathered it. We went out and got a, a PPP loan like many and worked. We did not need to lay all our employees off, but it was it was pretty grim for a while. And then obviously in, in May, with phase two starting, we were able to open back up at partial capacity. I think that's really, really helped both the winery and the brewery is we have a lot of outdoor seating right. and we're in rural locations. So what we saw very quickly ramping up in May, but really took off in June and July is everybody wanted to get out of the country. And all of the wineries, I think, here in the Yakin Valley have experienced that there's just been a tremendous amount of desire to go to places where you don't have a lot of people. You know, we social distance all our tables outside, but you still have the great views. Luckily for us, we have the disc golf course and we let people walk wherever they want in the vineyard. So we've done pretty well um, throughout the summer. I wouldn't call it normal, but better than we expected. And I think it's really driven by people just wanting to get out. And being able to be outside and, and not being as concerned about encountering someone um, is definitely it, it, a, a, a plus. And like you said, exactly. being outside and, is good know, here, for the Here soul. in Elkin, where I happen to be sitting, Stone Mountain has to turn people away every weekend. They have lines waiting to get into the park. And so those people are coming out to Elkin. And then when they're done hiking, they go find a place to eat or go to a winery to drink. Yeah, so I think that that urge to get out in into the rural areas, and you know, I think Elkin and and Mount Airy are both pretty rural. That's what's been driving a lot of our business uh, for us. The flip side of that, I think, one of the challenges is our tasting room is extremely small. You know, we're limited to ten people inside at any one time, and so we're doing all of our tastings outside. And the way we do that is we'll pour a flight of wines in small cups and we'll give everybody a glass to take out with them with the tasting notes to enjoy on their own. So they get to sit outside, socially distance, and, and enjoy a wine tasting. But we don't get to interact with them in that situation. Right. And so we lose that one-on-one -on -one time to explain our wines and the passion that goes into them and you know all those things that, that help us also sell our wines. So I do think that when we look at sales, we may not be selling as much out the door as we might otherwise because we're not having that interaction we normally would. Yeah, that makes sense. But your approach is is keeping your your employees safe, your customers safe, and it's what a lot of places are doing these days is is doing those flights and letting folks go outside and and enjoy those on their own. So yeah, but it exactly. definitely could have an impact for sure. Yeah. So, so I think this, you know, throughout the fall, it's going to be great. Once we come into this like more inclement weather, right. we're yeah. not quite sure how we're going to handle that with our very tiny taste room. So yeah, yeah there's going to be a lot of people that will be experiencing that with you. I'm sure having that same problem. So um, exactly. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about um, some of what you learned over the years of doing business, uh, both from like the the Round Peak side when you purchased, but then also you know developing that second brand and opening up and branching out to the restaurant and the brewery. What have been some of the lessons that you've learned over the years? So I will say that you know Carrie and I did not put a lot of thought into you know buying the winery in the in the sense of knowing exactly what goes on in detail because neither one of us had ever been a farmer or run a winery so we had good people on the staff when we took over and I went to school and ultimately got an education around viticulture and analogy the biggest learning experience I, I think for us was it all starts in the vineyard and ends in the vineyard if you don't have good grapes coming in you're not going to have good wine but the other part of that is how much time and effort it takes in the vineyard and how dependent you are on the weather. That was probably the single biggest learning experience was, you know, we don't control things out there. Things happen. So as an engineer, that was my most difficult learning as well. I like to control things and you, you can't control everything going on in the vineyard. <laughs> That's very, very true. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the second part was, we're, we, we're very small and we want to stay very small. How important it is to be in the winery on the weekends, greeting your customers and, and interacting with them as the owners. 
You know, I think that's why a lot of people come back and, you know, we've done more and less over the times. And we, we see that impact when we were not there all the time. So I think our second learning, and Carrie will probably agree with this, is how much of your weekends you have to devote to being at the business. We never had a weekend job before that, you know, we had to commit to. So those are probably the two biggest learnings we had. Gary, anything on top of that? Well, I'll just elaborate a little bit on the weekend. Um, you know, as I said at the beginning, I'm I'm still doing my, my full-time co- corporate job, which basically means, you know, if, if you're at the weekend or at the winery also on the weekend, you don't have much time off. And um, I think one of the learnings is, you know, how do you get that balance? You know, in Ken's case, he's, he's vineyard Monday through Friday. And then, you know, weekends where we're doing a lot of winery events. So it's one of those things where I, I always love it when someone comes to the, the winery and says, Oh, this is just my dream. And what a, you know, they're, they're envisioning that, you know, every day you're sitting there with your glass of wine, just looking out at your beautiful <laughs> vineyards and, and life is easy and, and pure bliss. And I, I think, you know, the reality is, I, I'm sure as you've talked to so many um, winery owners, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of stress and it's a lot of, um, you know, late nights and, and things like that and weekends. Uh, and that's part of what, you know, if you, if you don't love what you do, you would never do it. But, um, but it is, it is all those things, you know, you do get to sit admire your vineyard and have wine that you produce, but it's also a lot of work to get there. And, and in the end, it's, it's a lot of farming. But that, that all that work makes you appreciate that view and that, that relaxing thing environment even more, I'm sure. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the most amazing feelings is when you've worked so hard to grow the grapes and especially on the red side, make the wine. We always let our bottles mature at least a year in bottle. So you add all that time together and it, it's, you know, three or four years later, you finally get to taste that wine and, and put it, you know, in your tasting room for sale. There's always that great sense of, of accomplishment that, you know, we did this. Absolutely. And, you know, it never gets old to, to, you know, release a wine. Or even I'll, I'll just say, because Ken knows I do this all the time, when we put our whites or our rosés that are in tank, there's nothing better than pouring yourself a glass straight from the tank. <laughs> there's Carrie really does a lot of that. that <laughs> I'm with you on that one, Carrie. I, I definitely do appreciate that, and it's always fun. It's, it's one of the perks, though, right? So Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I go to make the wine. I have half a tank left. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if we were going to go go there, and we did. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the, the that went, right? Well, yeah, exactly. Angel. Sure, yes. <laughs> and so Carrie's saying she's an angel, Ken. So it's okay. Exactly. <laughs> so Ken, you had mentioned uh, learning and education. Talk to us a little bit about your involvement with the North Carolina wine growers. So as you know, I'm currently president of the North Carolina Wine Grower Association. I'll be very happy to give up that um, spot here in uh, January, although I'll still remain on the board as past president and continue to help. But the North Carolina Wine Grower Association is so important to the industry because it's one of the few um, groups that our focus is education. It's all about education. And it's so hard as a as an owner, as a winemaker, as a as a vineyard manager to get out. You know, you, you get so involved in your business, you just never, you know, take the time to, you know, put your head up. And what this organization does is gives that opportunity to all these different people um, to get together, whether it's our annual conference or our quarterly seminars, to step back you know, get together and learn something, you know, whether it's about the vineyard, what's going on, new, new bugs that are invading, new winemaking techniques. There's always something to learn. But I think the, 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 the huge benefit of the Wine Grower Association is, is, is being a part of that. You do break away and you do go out and meet with others in the industry because um, I can speak from experience. I don't get much out much other than that. Um, and, and, you know, everything we do, 
um, is really focused on North Carolina. There's a lot of information out across the, the country from, you know, obviously the West Coast, from New York and everywhere else. But to learn stuff that's very specific to North Carolina, there's no other um, educational way to do that. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really important. I urge everybody to, to become a part of it if, if they're not. Um, and even if they're not, there's still most of our seminars are available to everybody. Yeah, it's definitely a great resource for the industry and a lot of uh, great work. And that's always one of our highlights of our year is going to the conference and getting to see everyone. Uh, so I guess we'll figure out how that's going to work but this year. But um, we're, we're still figuring that out. <laughs> and you mentioned, you know, the bugs. I think outside of seeing everyone and kind of catching up and, and the networking and connecting, I really do enjoy learning about the different pests and vectors that are kind of coming in and infesting the vineyards. It's like, oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, there, there's always something new is, is my takeaway every year. You know, there's, as far as pests and bugs, but there, yeah, it's, there's always something new to learn as well. For sure. The, the other thing I'd say is for people who think they might want to have a vineyard or a winery or they're just really interested in the industry um, and want to come learn more, you know, every year there are a variety of people who, you know, aren't in the industry yet, but they're thinking about it or they want to know more. And um, it's a great way to just sort of find out what it's all about, do some networking, you know, hear from people who are doing what you're considering you might want to do and um, getting the inside scoop. So, you know, it's not like you have to be a winery owner or a vineyard owner to to come to our event. Um, we get a lot of different people, as you know. Yes. It's a really good call out. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And every year I talk to, you know, quite a few people who are doing exactly that. It's, it's the best way to, to, to learn whether you really want to do it or not. And, it, and it's really fun when you talk to someone five, six, seven years ago, you know, who is, who is interested, and then you see them a couple of years later and a couple of years after that, and you hear about their planting and, you know, oh, well, we're building our tasting room or we're building our winery or we're opening in six months, whatever it is. It's, it's really exciting um, to see how that grows. And, you know, it, it's a family. We're a very cooperative industry. I think it's one of the few industries where there isn't, we're not competing against each other. We're competing together to make North Carolina wine great. Well put, well put. So we're kind of winding down on the questions here. One thing that we usually like to kind of wrap up with is, what is it you want customers to know when they come to visit, whether it's Round Peak or Skull Camp, when they walk in the door, what is it that you want them to know? I think Carrie actually mentioned at the very beginning Everybody has their different story and and what brought them into the industry, what their winery is like, what the experience will be. For us, it really is about relaxing. It's coming out, not just doing a tasting, buying a bottle of wine and leaving. It's coming, relaxing on our patio, enjoying the views. We're very pet friendly, so we want you to bring your dog. We're very kid friendly. Um, our vineyard is completely open. You can go walk anywhere you want. And we have a disc golf course you can, you can play. So, so for us, it's really come enjoy some great wines in a very relaxing atmosphere. Yeah. And, and I would just add to that, don't rush. And I think sometimes you know, people say, well, I'm heading out wine tasting. I'm going to hit five different places. <laughs> and, you know, that, that you're on a mission for it. I think one of the things, certainly when you come to Round Peak, is add in some extra time because you're going to want to enjoy the view and and sit and relax or take a stroll around the vineyard you're going to want to hear the stories and and try the different wines and and maybe do beer a beer flight as well so um just don't rush it and and come and spend some time bring a picnic bring a snack something so you can hang out good advice definitely so I guess, is there anything else that you would like folks to know and maybe tell folks exactly how to find you, both location, website, Facebook, et cetera? So you can find us at www.roundpeak.com. Facebook is roundpeak, um, skullcampbrewing.com, and also our Facebook page. The two link together, so you, know, you can find both um, from the other. Um, Physically, we're just outside Mount Airy, right off I-77. We're 
I-74 crosses, it's exit 100. We're about a mile and a half off the freeway, so very easy access. And um, we are right in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountain. And Skull Camp is located just north of downtown Elkin at 1980 North Bridge Street. It's the old Basin Creek restaurant building. We have a large covered patio here that you can sit outside and enjoy food and beer. And we have most of our wines here as well. The other thing about Skull Camp location is it's right off of 21. So um, Route 21 that would take you up to Stone Mountain or, um, you know, the Blue Ridge Parkway as you go towards um, Sparta. We're just, you know, I mean, quarter mile off of um, maybe not even that off of 21. So as you go pick up your Christmas tree or you go up to hike in um, Stone Mountain State Park or you're going anywhere off that northern route of 21, we're a really easy stop stop point. Definitely, yes. Well, Ken, Carrie, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us today. We really appreciate it, and we look forward to visiting Round Peak and Skull Camp again soon. Now we appreciate you having us on, and I hope everybody enjoys the conversation. Absolutely. Great talking with you guys. for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Ken and Carrie. We really enjoyed talking to them about how they created a relaxing and laid-back atmosphere at Round Peak Vineyards and Skull Camp Brewery. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a Freeman LLC production. This episode was made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.